All creation is copying, or as a pioneering web series put it, everything is a remix. Perhaps no song illustrates this as well as the Verve's 1997 smash, Bittersweet Symphony. Even if you know that this song has something to do with the Rolling Stones, you probably don't know the whole story. I sure didn't, so I'm going to do my best to retell it. There's a gospel song called This May Be The Last Time. It's a traditional song. We don't know who wrote it. It probably dates to the early 20th century, but it may go back much further than that. In 1954, this song was arranged by Roebuck Pop Staples and recorded by the Staples Singers. This brought the song to the attention of an obscure English rock and roll band that was not shy about borrowing from African-American influences. The Rolling Stones released their song The Last Time in 1965 as a non-album single. The chorus borrowed most of the lyrics and melody from the chorus of the Staples Singers version. And it was a hit. It hit number one in the UK and number nine in the US. The Stones manager, Andrew Luke Oldham, had a side project called the Andrew Oldham Orchestra. He would recruit arrangers and session musicians to produce instrumental orchestral versions of popular songs by bands such as the Beach Boys, the Four Seasons, and especially the Rolling Stones. Oldham released the Rolling Stones songbook in 1966, and one of the songs on it was The Last Time, with strings arranged by David Whitaker. Now fast forward to the mid-90s. An English singer-songwriter, Richard Ashcroft, is working on songs for his band's new album. He listens to the Andrew Oldham Orchestra version of the Rolling Stones version of the Staples Singers' arrangement of the traditional gospel song and thinks, this would make a cool riff for a rock song. So he licenses the sample and hires his own session musicians to play over it. If you listen to the Andrew Oldham Orchestra song, it's very easy to hear where Ashcroft started, but if I ask you to hum the riff from Bittersweet Symphony, that riff doesn't quite appear in the Andrew Oldham song. Oh, and Ashcroft also borrowed the verse melody from Mick Jagger, wrote new lyrics, and sang it more slowly. In 1998, Ashcroft said he wanted, quote, to take something but really twist it and fuck it up into something else. Take it and use your imagination. And he said he was inspired by hip-hop. I'm not really interested in the legal aspects of the story. Yes, Ashcroft licensed the the sample. The Stones manager, Alan Klein, was a dick about it. Ashcroft had to give 100% of of the royalties to the Stones and none to the Staples singers. And Ashcroft didn't get his songwriting credit until Mick Jagger and Keith Richards gave it back to him in 2021. But the point is, while Bittersweet Symphony is unusual in having a history that traces back over 100 years, it's not a weird outlier. We just know the chain of borrowing for this song better than most. Everything is a remix. Today on Hidden Jukebox, The Verve's Bittersweet Symphony. And that was our episode about Bittersweet Symphony. Where can they find us, Matthew? All right. Thanks, everyone. Well, the f- so I feel like I sort of overstated this because really what what the Verve borrowed was the verse from the Stones song and the Stones had borrowed the chorus of their song from the Staple Singers. Right. The first thing that I want to say right. is um, let's start by connecting this back to the band Fish because obviously they're involved in this. Oh, Matthew <laughs> almost did a spit take. Yeah. Um, Classic I- Fish take. Fish has done two large hiatuses. The first one uh, in October of 2000, almost to the day that we're recording this. And uh, right before they started, they played the Stone song the last time. This could be the last time, mm-hmm. maybe the last time, I don't know. So I've known that song since before then, but for many, many years. And never, never until I started hearing about the controversy, controversy slash uh, legal rights of this song did I realize this song was even based on that song because they sound 
nothing alike. Until, but then when you, I mean, first of all, they, it does sound like the instrumental Andrew Orchestra version, the Definitely. Verb song does. Well, I've also, never heard that. If you think about the verse melodies, you know, I told you once and I told you twice. That's the Stone song. Um, it's a bit of sweet symphony. It's, it is the it's same melody. It's a stretch. It's like, like, I hate to bring it up, but you hear, uh, what was that goddamn Robin Thicke song? Um, Blurred Lines. Blurred Lines. You're like, yeah, I mean, that's that uh, Marvin, Marvin Gaye, Gaye song. song. Clearly, that's that Marvin Gaye song. They ripped it off. You, you don't hear this and go, oh, that's the same melody as the last time by the Stones. No, I, I agree. Um, and But, but like... It's not that it's not that Rich, Richard Ashcroft ever claimed that he wasn't inspired by that song. You know, he licensed the song. Right. Well, they they never claimed anything about like trying to rip off or cover up. They paid for the licensing. They right. they said this is a sample of this and at if I'm if I'm wrong, correct me here, but at first uh the Stones were like, "Yeah, that's fine." And then oh, they yeah, were yeah. like no, 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 no. That's that's not fine. Right. What happened apparently is the their manager, they're not Andrew Oldham, but uh, who is still alive, but their later manager Alan Klein, who is not, uh, heard uh, Bittersweet Symphony, was like, "Oh, you borrowed way more than you said you were going to. Like, we're going to sue you if you don't sign the entire royalty. It's over to us." And and so then, almost twenty five years later, Mick and Keith who are walking skeletons and somehow still alive went... <laughs> someone, someone still put out a new album, and, like, and just like put, this yeah, month. Just put out a new album, because apparently they're also still writing music from from their wheelchairs. Uh, or perhaps still borrowing music, we'll see. Yeah, because yeah, they're rip-off artists, too. Yeah. Um, went, you know what? Take your money back. We're cool with it now. We, we've allowed enough time. I, I don't know what made this all go away finally i think that this i believe like richard ashcroft reached out to them and said like you know hey guys like you know the the guy who made me sign over all the royalties is dead now you probably never really cared about that could we come to a like a friendly agreement and they were like yeah sure we we have money yeah i'd say they have plenty of money and uh you know we'll talk a lot about this song here yeah and, and how it's one of the greatest songs ever written. It's a true classic. And and that Richard Ashcroft and and the rest of the members of the Verve definitely deserve the, the large, large amounts of money that were being made off of this song. Yeah, absolutely. But like this issue of like who gets credit for a song like is inherently messy because like, you know, this is a Verve song. This is not a version of either of the previous songs that inspired it. But it definitely owes a lot to those songs. And there's no we, – we don't have a legal framework that, that can encompass the way music actually works. You know, we have like either you crossed the line and stole our song or you didn't and a judge decides. And like that's not how music works at all. Well, and, and first a band decides because like certain bands hear something and go – Oh my God! I'm so honored that you liked my song so much that you want totally. to use it. Yeah, it's it's only certain times that a band goes, no, 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 no. Yeah, but it's not it's not like unreasonable in a lot of cases. Like if you're a, if you're like a little band that gets ripped off by a big band, like you know you're you're gonna want to sue them. Like you're it's not it's not like you're gonna say okay, I'm gonna do a good deed and not sue them. Maybe that yeah. that's that's the that, weird that, part yeah, of that's it. That's how the legal the, the bands the bands who are suing in these cases are not the villains. It's that like the legal system just does not make sense. I I've been in bands that you know get twenty thousand views on YouTube, mm-hmm. which isn't a lot, but 
if a big band stole quote unquote our song and then people went back and started listening to our song because they heard that it was taken from it i would take the publicity over the money of course like that that could spread like wildfire in this day and age yeah now in 1997 when the internet was was fledgling probably not uh i did find this stat about this song okay by 2018, Ashcroft had only made about a thousand dollars off. I think this that was song. just a one-time, yeah, which fee, yeah, yeah, it was. It was part, part of the settlement deal. Hey, we'll give you a thousand bucks. Don't spend it all in one place. And it's estimated that at that point, the song had netted about five million dollars in royalties. That to, seems low to me. It, it does, right? It it definitely does. Um, although looking at this song, like. I expected when I looked this up that this was number one on the charts for weeks because it was everywhere right. when it was popular. And it hit 22 on the mainstream uh, rock charts. Um, the The Hot 100, it, it peaked at number 12. Okay. I think, you know, this is one of those songs, and this is not like a dig at the song, but like works extremely well as background music or commercial music. Like, you know, it has an epic, that, that's not because like, you know, there's something wrong with the song. Like, you know, it just kind of, there. there's nothing that's going to make anyone dislike it. And it has like a great, you know, epic pump them up feel. And and it's not so in your face that right. people are going to be like, I can't concentrate on the car ad. Because right. Like, you know, is... Smells Like Teen Spirit is a is also a classic song, but you can understand why that one hasn't had like the quite the life that this song has. Right. Um, like, like, I think you still hear this at sporting events and and on commercials. Like, yeah, this, this song will used. never die. Right. Um, you didn't even write in your intro yet. You mentioned it anyway that this song seems to take from hip hop, and this was yes. a, a thought I had without you writing it down. Yes, that, and he said that Richard Ashcroft said said he was inspired by how hip hop uses samples and loops. So. We talk a lot on this show about uh, song form and how classic Western song form tends to follow this general pattern of first chorus, first chorus, bridge, outro, and it, it can vary a little bit. This song doesn't have a bridge. It's sampled parts. It's a 4-4 four, four groove with a shout chorus. It's, it is the hip-hop formula. Yeah, absolutely. And like this, so this is a four-chord loop song, um, which are relatively unusual, but I think, I feel like are becoming more common, like especially in the pop world. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, so that, that just means it plays literally the same four chords over and over again throughout the entire song, throughout the, the chorus. There's no bridge. Um, and, you know, it gets its interest out of like the, the dynamics and, uh, and arrangement of the song rather than the harmony. Yeah. Um, kind of like, as you mentioned, Creep by Radiohead. Yes. Also, also an interesting borrowing story because that song definitely borrowed from a Holly's song and was then definitely borrowed from, by a Lana Del Rey song, all three of which are very, very good songs. There was another song that I think we mentioned on the show that borrowed that so- that song. Like, it, it's just four common chords. and Yeah, it's a, and, that's a really great chord progression. This uh, one is too. Yeah. Uh, you... Asked a question here. <laughs> oh, I asked what key do you think this song is in? I think you're right. Um, well, well, first off, you you did this. <laughs> I, I put TLDR 
Uh, I linked you to a 40 minute video. A 40 minute <laughs> video about pop songwriting. I'm like, I'm not going to yeah, watch 40 minutes of this. The point of that video, which, which kind of applies to this song and kind of not, is that often like a pop four chord loop song isn't really in one particular key. It is, there's no like, single place where it feels resolved it's moving to like like chords with more tension to chords with more resolution and that is kind of how the song ambles along this song is in e, in e mixolydian i think it, it's definitely an e mixolydian. i know all of our and, listeners were wondering and and if, if you listen to the bass line it's doing what i call a, a one five seven four pattern e b d a yeah but which is very common in songwriting uh, but but what's interesting is that minor seventh, the the uh, what is it the D, yeah this is definitely getting into yeah, uh-huh. leads here, um, gets used a lot in the melody and the melody even the string parts and the vocals tend to stay away from the root. They tend to stay right. away from and that Right, and so because e. of that, like, if you, if you like, play the song and then, like, you know, play a big E to finish it off, it doesn't it, really it, sound resolved. Yeah, it, it sounds almost like you try to nail the wrong chord. Right, so so for that reason, like, a lot of people online will say, this chord, this song is in A major, which is the same notes of the scale as, as E mixolydian, but that does not sound like a chord to resolve on either. I think this song is not quite 100% totally in the key. Like, just, it just doesn't, it doesn't quite sound like it. I, I mean, as a bassist, I'm going to completely disagree mm-hmm. with that, but that's because the first thing that I hear in any song is the bass, yeah, and it's very, is, it's very much outlining the that e- is. That is fair. All right, cool. <laughs> um, and, and the other thing that I was going to say about the melody is, is this the best melody ever written? You mean the the like the string riff? No. See, that's something that I found so interesting about listening. Like everyone should go and listen to the the Andrew Oldham Orchestra the last time, and then listen to this. Because Richard Ashcroft and and or the session musicians that played on Bittersweet Symphony took a good riff and turned it into an all-time great riff, and it's not that different. And and it's funny because the song has no bridge, it has mm-hmm. no variation, it's just a constant repetitive thing with like little embellishments for five minutes, but it works so well that it, it's instantly hummable you start do, you start seeing that do 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 and anybody yeah. goes oh bittersweet symphony i love that song oh yeah it's a it's a great riff like the vocal melody is kind of like if you if you took it out of context is not very interesting at all um have you have you seen the performance of Coldplay doing this at Live Eight? Yes, where, I watched it this morning. Where Richard Ashcroft <laughs> comes out in bare feet in front of 250,000 people <laughs> yes. and just crushes it yes and it, so good and first off because it's a four chord song it kind of makes me realize it's a great cover song for like any band to play because it's really easy and you can learn it really fast but nailing that the the frontman part in front of 250,000 people like he's so good and Chris Martin introduces it as the best song ever written and here's the best singer in the world yeah and yeah his, his voice is so good it's like one of those like 
it's it's a real like English rock guy voice that like it seems like no one from any other country ever has unless they're trying to emulate an English rock guy voice. So it's funny that you mention this because on my way over here this morning, I just happened to be listening to Supergrass. Oh yeah, love Supergrass. I love so good. God, I wish that band was still around. They are so great and. And their lead singer does a very similar Richard Ashcroft, uh, like uh, a little bit sneering there, kind there's of. A little, you know, like there's a little Jagger Tom York, inspired, a little Tom York in there, but yeah. like the same sort of like Eng- English singer songwriter thing. Like, and they just like their voice sounds so so full. Yeah, um, like you know, he's he's not singing a very wide range of notes in this song at all, but is like saying thro- so much just through the tone, especially because the lyrics are kind of you know throw a- not throw away, but like you can- anyone not, can read their own meaning. Not into as throw this away song. as their friends Oasis's lyrics. Right, right, yeah. I, that's not really what I meant. It's it's that they are they are like you know just kind of vague and universal enough that like anyone can listen to the song and see and be like, okay, I'm inspired by. By what he's saying in this song S- side note that we don't really need to make a point about but they toured early on with oasis before either band was really making it big and apparently they were really good friends and i find it funny that oasis decided that their arch nemeses were blur and not the verve who i'm not going to say who's better songwriters but like it feels like with ashcroft's narcissism that 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 would be the uh grudge match and not blur. oh totally yeah and uh yeah you talk about how like the, the verve is a one-hit wonder in the u.s but not in the uk i mean th- this album had three or four pretty big hits in the uk off of it and you know i think that people have probably heard the drugs don't work yeah, it's a really and, good song and, and lucky man but Definitely. but they they barely made a splash in the u.s yeah if we were if we were an england-based podcast uh like we would be doing super grass <laughs> Which, by the way, next month we'll be coming to you from Sheffield. Uh, uh, we will be a uh, one-month English-based podcast. Bristol, uh, Newcastle upon Tyne. Uh, <laughs> um, I love I love reading like uh, bands bands going on on UK tours, just like the names of the places they're playing. <laughs> <laughs> that that would be fun. Um, let's also here for a minute talk about uh, the endless drama in this band (laughs) okay sure so the verve released i don't really know anything about it the the verve released four albums all of with all which had pretty much the same members i mean if you look at their timeline at one point they had a different guitarist for about three years but they basically existed from like 1989 to 2009 with all the same guys and Pretty much every time they'd make an album, Nick McCabe, their guitarist, who had apparently a lot of drug issues and depression issues, but nevertheless would get in a huge fight with Richard Ashcroft, say, screw you, I'm out of here, I'm done with you guys, and leave. And then it'd be time to record another album. Right, and be like, it's like, oh, wait, I don't have any way to make money except hanging out with those guys. Yeah, I, well, apparently on this one, so this album had two producers. The producer of the previous album came in and was going to do this album. And halfway through it, they scrapped him and brought in another producer... Uh, who had produced some really random bands. I'm trying to think of who it was. Oh, um, uh, he goes by one name. No, no, he goes by flood. Um, (laughs) yeah, just, just keep going. I'm, I'm going to find this eventually, but, um, he was, he was kind of listening to the songs that Richard Ashcroft had done and was like, 
you know, this album needs more guitar. <laughs> And they, sure. And they call in Nick McCabe. He's like, oh, yeah, I'll do it. Why not? Right. So, so I think that this band could have been more prolific and written more albums if they just hadn't hated each other so much. And that's always a tough story for me to hear when a oh, band sure. has a ton of potential and just can't be friends. Did they did they like was their fourth album like much more recent uh, it was like 2008, 2009. Okay. All right. Yeah. A- after Richard Ashcroft had done many interviews saying, you will never hear another Verve song. We are never. <laughs> of course. We're never, ever getting back together, as they say. Yeah. Uh, and they did. Um, yeah. The, I, I like the first Verve album a lot. Like it's it's much more guitar oriented, but like they they just really knew how to write a catchy song from day one. Well, and and they were almost like psych rock back then, mm-hmm. right? Like like they it wasn't it wasn't straight ahead guitar rock like what what a lot of the Britpop bands were doing. Right. It wasn't this acoustic symphonic thing that Urban Hymns is like. It was it was much more like 70s throwback rock. And I think a lot of that was Nick McCabe and wasn't necessarily Richard Ashcroft, although Richard Ashcroft had that swagger that that a good rock band has. Something I forgot to mention earlier when we were talking about chord loops is that like the world's most popular song is a four chord loop song, Blinding Lights by The Weeknd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um the guys the guy the producer's name is Youth. <laughs> I've never heard of this person but I like it. Uh he he has worked with Paul McCartney, but apparently he's mainly known for being the uh, bassist of the rock band Killing Joke. Okay, which is so random to me. That yeah, that's like that's like a real cult band. Yeah, yeah, it, and uh, he's he's kind of a nerdy looking guy, but uh, but he produced most of this album. They left a couple of tracks uh, behind uh, that John Leckie had produced, who had produced the sure. previous album. As well, John Lackey, great producer, produced uh, the Stone Roses. Debut yes, album? he did yeah. produce the Stone Roses, and uh, the Verve, Richard Ashcroft, cite the Stone Roses as probably their biggest influence. Yeah, I think I've I've been thinking about this lately. Like, you know, at this point where I am in my life, if you told me I could literally only have one album to listen to for the rest of my life, it would be the Stone Roses debut I, album. I mean, I've definitely, definitely said before on this show, and I'll say it again. I Want to Be Adored is the best opening track of any album ever. It absolutely is. Fuck I you, can't Fuck you, Dark Side of the Moon. I don't <laughs> care about you. <laughs> Wait, isn't the, isn't the opening track of Dark Side of the Moon just like like some people muttering? It's technically breathe. somebody's going to get uh, really mad at me. I don't me. think it is. It, it's probably got another name, but um, God damn it. <laughs> At least the way oh, the oh way- it's it's speak to me breathe yeah. so so okay, it's but it's I one think, song okay fine yeah it's it is a lot of noise to open it up though it's certainly not the best opening track of all time that's I want to be adored by yes, the Stone that Roses is, that is correct what yeah it's it's so brilliant yeah. um why why couldn't that album have come out like one year later so I, we I, could t- <laughs> I know like like 
we we cheated last month with in excess talking about an 80s band by doing a 90s song we're not going to do that with the yeah, stone roses let's do a, a, a 10 story love song is that what it's called you're asking the wrong person because i only like one stone roses album. <laughs> <laughs> yes everybody does <laughs> i mean that the, the, that's that's funny because like that second stone at roses album is not terrible but it is like you know there's there's just like one weird guy in the world who thinks it's anywhere near as good as the first album and so people remember it as being bad yeah but nobody remembers that guy because he's wrong exactly (laughs) uh so uh anything else to say about bittersweet symphony what is there are there any other songs you can think of that sort of fill the same cultural niche as this one that you can just like play it anywhere and like everyone is kind of going to be on board with it and you and you hear it everywhere i there's one song that instantly pops into my head and you're going to be like what okay can't hold us by macklemore okay no i'll buy that i I don't think it's i don't think it has anywhere near the reach of this song yet but but yeah macklemore you know he's he's hung on he's still doing his thing but he had his time when he was the biggest thing in the world but you still hear can't hold us at every sporting event on the planet it still works it like it's still used in ads uh you still hear it on the radio and like everybody knows that song and yeah that's and, true and the chorus is so great yeah i was i what came to mind for me was seven nation army but it it, sure. it can't fit into every context quite the same way that bittersweet symphony does yeah it's it's hard to capture lightning in a bottle like this yes it, i do i do feel like when jack white wrote the riff for seven nation army he was like okay cool i can retire now i did it i, I think andrew oldham was just kind of jealous that that richard ashcroft took something and made it way better than he had yeah, but it, it wasn't Andrew Oldham who had a problem. No, with it. It, was, it, was, it was their manager. It was the other manager. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what are you listening to? Okay, I got uh, two two musics and a book. Uh, so uh, Knower has a new album. Do you know the band Knower? I was so shocked and pleased when I saw this on your list because thank I, you. I'm like, there's no way that Matthew is ever going to listen to this band. If I showed it to him, he wouldn't like it. It's just too weird and too like musician oriented it's not made yeah, for the general it public. is it is music for music nerds absolutely but it's they're having so much fun the lyrics are like funny but you want to listen to them again it's not just a novelty and like you know they do like 18 different things in a song and make it all come together and they have really funny uh like low budget youtube videos yeah they're they're, they're viral online but like if they toured i feel like they'd be playing 200 person venues yeah so i would i would say they're kind of a jazz fusion band yeah and like uh another band that i'm really excited for the new album coming out next month is uh badge epoch ensemble which i've mentioned before yeah a terrible band name which is also definitely a jazz fusion band i feel like this might be a thing i'm starting to get into maybe I've got a lot of suggestions if you are. I figured you would. All right. We'll talk about this at some point in the future. Uh, okay. Metric has a new album called uh, Formentera 2. I don't know why they decided to make it a two of their last album, like like their Nas or something. Uh, but it is, I've only, it just came out at the time we're taping. I've listened to it twice. Uh, but I think it's good. I think it's probably better than the previous one, which I found kind of disappointing. Um, and the standout songs for me are Suckers and Days of Oblivion. Suckers has like a really cool instrumental breakdown outro. Uh, and a book that if you listen to Hidden Jukebox, I 
guarantee you're going to enjoy this book. It's called The Singer's Talk by Jason Thomas Gordon, and it features interviews with dozens of amazing singers talking just about their voice and their vocal routine. Like, how did they learn to sing? How do they warm up? What do they do when they get sick? Like, which singers do they admire? Who do they wish they could duet with? Um, and it features several Hidden Jukebox, Hidden Jukebox alums, including Tom York and Michael Stipe. Um, and I especially love the uh, the Steve Perry interview and the Mavis Staples interview. The Mavis Staples interview, like, he was able to ask her, like, which songs of yours were Martin Luther King's favorites? And also asked, like, was Martin Luther King a good singer? And she was like, no. Which is something that we forgot to mention. Uh, this could be the last time made famous by the Staples singers. What was Mavis's brother's name? Oh, Purvis. <laughs> yeah, Fucking Purvis, fantastic Purvis name. Staples. Purvis Staples. Yes. Like, yes, thank you to his parents, because that is fantastic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the uh, the singers the singers talk and the um, the the guy wrote it. I never heard of him. He's in a band called King Size. Uh, like no a, idea. No, not not a well known band. But I listen to it. Really good, really good stuff. Good singer, catchy, catchy. Like you know, two uh, thousands alternative tunes. This this is the next book on my list. Yeah. I will be reading it. So uh, Royal Blood has a new album, Back to the Water Below. They are a consistently fantastic rock duo from oh, the UK. Oh, a band with a bassist and no guitarist. Yes, and and yeah, they get compared to the White Stripes and the Black Keys for obvious reasons, but they're much heavier than those bands, if that's possible. Really great riffs, really great hooks. You can barely tell that it's bass because even I as a bassist, if somebody said, oh, we're a bass guitar or bass drums duo, I'd be like, well, I'm not going to see that. Um, it's it's great. And they've got a lot of crossover appeal between this mainstream pop sound and hard rock. Uh, I, I don't think they've ever put out something bad. They, you know, they're throwaway tracks, but all of their albums are great. OK, I think, I think this is their fourth. Goose, um, who I, I might have mentioned once or twice on here before, <laughs> um, they put out a surprise EP uh, called Autumn Crossing. And I hate the term jam bands. They always have this weird thing in common where they have bust out songs, songs that they only play once in a blue moon. Most of the time, that means it's actually just a terrible song. This bust out song isn't is the song where you like throw your bra on stage when they play it. Uh, that's the audience busting out, not the band okay, busting great. out. Different thing. Um, they have this release, they have released the CP. It's showcasing their bust out song called El Meg the Wise. The, the song is six and a half minutes of just great hooks and gorgeous melodies. The whole album is a perfect feel for changing of the seasons. And really it's not for jam band fans at all. It's like folk acoustic and it's it's fantastic, and it sounds like you might have listened to it. Already. I listened to it this morning. I thought it was really good. Um, first of all, I love I love a song that really like leans into like we're doing like a uh, Led Zeppelin loves loves J.R.R. Tolkien type type of vibe yep. um, uh, lyrically, and then. Uh, one thing, like, sometimes I have to, like, mix my own vocals, which I hate doing, and one of the hardest things to do well when you're mixing vocals is get get a reverb sound that is, like, interesting but not too interesting. So it's not like, hey, look at me, look what I did in the studio, but, like, it sounds, like, cool and otherworldly yeah, and really, that- really elevates the voice, and this song has it. There's this amazing, like, kind of fluttery plate reverb on the vocals that sounds so good. Yeah, they're, they're really doing great stuff, and... I know I talk it up a lot, but it's for a good reason. You should really go and listen to them if you haven't yet. 
Okay, so you can find us online at www.hiddenjukebox.com, facebook.com slash hiddenjukebox, instagram.com slash jukeboxhidden, uh, on all of your favorite streaming platforms. Um, we might have some guests coming up here and a wonderful surprise song next month, uh, just in time for the holidays. Yeah, that probably won't surprise anyone. Oh, good point. (laughs) Uh, Until then, I'm Jake Amster. And I'm Matthew Amster Burton. We can't change. No, 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 no.